Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Welcome in on a Tuesday morning. I want to pull the curtain back for you. You, the early risers, you get the prize. I'm not telling the 8 o'clock listeners this. Why? Because I don't like the 8 o'clock listeners as much. They kind of have a dull look in their eyes. They're not, I don't know. It's a radio shtick I heard once upon a time. Pity towers listeners against each other. It worked for a guy for 20 years. What the heck? Borrow a little shtick here and there. I do want to pull the curtain back. So when we talk about the show, we talk about ways, especially this last, uh, I would say, six weeks. Um, Because for a while, the coronavirus was the news. And certainly for a while, you couldn't get away from what was happening in society uh, after George Floyd uh, was killed in Minnesota. But over the last four, five, six weeks, whatever it is, somewhere in there, we've been looking like, how do we get sports back in the show? And this is just is a nonstop coronavirus and nonstop race, the people you want to hear about, what you want to hear about. You want to hear about the stories of the day. But the problem is the stories of the day tend to be about health and race issues. They don't tend to be about sports. But I think where they come together here, and what I want to spend a few minutes on now, is the future. And let's go with the short-term future, meaning the next six to eight months, maybe ten We're all looking forward to football because we all look forward to football. I only hate football for one reason. It marks the end of summer, and summer is my favorite season. And summer, not so much this summer, but most summers of my life have meant a vacation, a trip somewhere to see friends or family. That's usually where we vacation, uh, somewhere where we've got friends or family. And my friends and family are spread out enough that that gives us, you're like, oh, I don't like friends and family. I like to go to Southern California and go to the zoo or Disneyland. Yep, well, I got that covered with friends and family. I like to go to Hawaii. Well, I got two aunts, two uncles, two cousins, and now the cousins have kids. How many? Got four kids. So we got tons of family. Oh, and then I got a cousin on my mom's side over there, too. So I got like 10 people to go see in Hawaii. So I'm, the trips are the best. We're not doing trips this summer. So now we'll have kids going back to school. That's the other downside. The, the summer with the kids schedule is great because uh, you get to have them around more. And that's a, that's a lot of fun. And so school takes them back. So that's that's an issue. But other than that, man, football, we look forward to it. We crave it. It's so much fun. So many people get into it. You got your team or you got your teams. Uh because some of you are rooting plural for teams, uh, one college, one pro. Well, some of you are rooting for a couple college teams. Who are we kidding? Uh, I root for Utah, and whoever plays BYU. I root for BYU, and whoever plays Utah. I root for Utah State, and whoever plays Utah and BYU. Yeah, I know how it works. Uh, but this college football season, obviously, you know, <laughs> we're getting so many mixed messages, right? We have had high-profile coaches, Right, we've had uh, the coach at Oklahoma State, uh, Mike Gundy. Gundy, we're going. We got to get these kids on campus and run money through the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, and then a few months later, uh, he's getting his contract shortened and taking a massive pay cut because of stuff he said. And we got uh, Clemson's coach, who's I mean, how do you build a dynasty to rival Alabama? Dabo Sweeney's done it at Clemson. We're playing, except then the governor of South Carolina is saying, I don't know that we're going to be playing football at the high school or college level in South Carolina. They don't have a pro team. The Carolina Panthers are up in Charlotte, North Carolina. So to think he could be shutting down the ACC and the SEC, none of us really know what's going to happen in two months. And I think if I had my druthers, if I had complete power, if I was the commissioner of college football, and that job doesn't even exist, although it should. But that's another segment. If I were the commissioner of college football, I would say right now, we're going to try to play the season as scheduled, 
But each one of you, every school president, every school AD, every football coach, you got to decide every week. You can't decide for the whole country all at once. You can't even decide what is the right thing to do for the Pac-12. Larry Scott can't decide. I mean, when you think about the whole coronavirus thing, when it started, Seattle, San Francisco, Seattle, they're all getting flights from China, right? So that's where the outbreak is first. But Phoenix, Salt Lake, Boulder, Portland, well, or Eugene and Corvallis, not getting hit, right? Then L.A. and San Francisco seem to get under control. It goes nuts in Seattle. Seattle gets under, under control, but it's going nuts in Arizona and California. None of this addresses what's happening in Oregon, Utah, or Colorado at any time. I think that they need to say, you got at least 15 weeks to play 12. We're going to try to have the Rose Bowl, the New Year's Six Bowl games, the playoffs, and I guess the playoffs is the Rose Bowl this year. We're going to try and have them on time, but every week... Play the game that's scheduled if you can. And in some places, you probably can. And in some places, you probably can't. I like the idea of moving the conference title game back a week. If there are big issues in September and October, I would move the playoff back to February or March and the New Year's Six Bowl games. And I'd say you've got 20 weeks to play as many of the 12 games as you can. Prioritize them however you want. Try to play them as scheduled. But then if you have to reschedule into December and January, you know, the conference games are the most important. Reschedule the non-conference if you can. And then at some point, you put in, uh, you put in the absolute stop date. Okay, the regular season's got to end, you know, end of February. And we'll have the playoffs and bowl games in March, and then we'll turn the, all the seniors loose for the draft in April. And that's how I would approach the college football season. I just, I hear coaches saying, we can do it in the spring. Uh, some of you can probably do it in the spring. Will all of you? You know, is there going to be a vaccine? Is it going to be mass distributed? Is it going to work for 50% of the people or 70% of 90% of the people? How can anyone know that now? How can you be 100% sure you know that now? I don't think you can. I think if you have the opportunity, you have to play. And if it's not the smart thing, if it's not the right thing, if it's not the safe thing to do, then kick the can down the road and reschedule the game for December. And if December gets filled up, Reschedule it for January. You know, if you can't play the reschedule in December, reschedule it a second time to January. I just think you have to be flexible. And if we have to go into the playoffs with some teams having played six games and some having played eight and some having played ten, so be it. Just roll with it. we got to be flexible. These are unprecedented times. None of us control it. We've all got a way we'd like to see things go. But, man, if we've learned anything over the last three weeks, three weeks, well, three weeks, or the last three months, four months now, I guess, into the fourth month, uh, we're not going to get everything the way we'd like it. So I just, I hope they're flexible with it. Don't try to be too crazy. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't be insane. As PK likes to say, stay away from the extremes. And I just think, given college football, you know, 20 weeks to play 12 games. And if you don't play 12, if you play 10 or 9 or 11 or 7, you know, you do the best you can. But I just think making... Hardcore state. I love when we had Dr. David Petron on. He made so much sense to me. It was such good common sense. We know a lot more now than we knew two months ago, but we're going to know a lot more in two months. So let's remain flexible. All right. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Jason Whitlock, coming up next. Stay with us. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. 
from Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, right now, time to welcome in Jason Whitlock, columnist for OutKick.com. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Jason, good morning. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes with you because you've probably got a bunch of these lined up. So uh, no warm-up. We'll jump right into the deep end of the pool. I'm a little... uh, I'm I'm a little confused as to how this is going to go going forward. I see the cry for uh, social change, and it does seem like there's more awareness, but I'm old enough to remember the riots after Rodney King, and I'm thinking, what is really going to change? But then I wake up one day and see the Washington Redskins are legitimately in the process of thinking of changing their name, and what are they going to change it to? And I didn't think I was going to live to see that. How optimistic are you that things are really going to change in a real, and I get perfect, but are going to change for the better in a real way, given what you've seen the last couple of months? Uh, I'm not as optimistic as as you, I don't think, because, look, I, I think there's going to be some symbolic changes. And, look, I was always someone that thought uh, the Washington Redskins should change their team name. But it, was, it wasn't a strongly held passion because I don't know, I haven't fully figured out where Native Americans stand on this. And there are conflicting reports about how Native Americans feel. Uh, so th- this is an issue and a passionate issue, I think, for a lot of outsiders who are ashamed that the team has this nickname. But, but so. I think it's good that the name is going to change, but I'm not sure if that is a substantive change that really changes the context and content or the just injustice in America. I'm not sure if that's going to be fully changed by some of these public gestures and symbolic gestures that are taking place. I'm not only old enough to remember the 92 riots. I was working for a Los Angeles newspaper in 1992 and brought a transistor radio to the to a game I was covering on uh, Wednesday, no, April 29, 1992, to make sure I drove the appropriate way home and didn't go through areas when the verdict came out. And my wife taught at Washington High, which is right there in South Central and all that stuff. So I got a lot of experience on that. I'm wondering, I'm all for this type of social awareness that's being raised, but I'm wondering how much good is it going to do? You know, the Black Lives Matter painted on the court, the messages on the back of their jerseys. How much is good is it going to do at the ground level to help people? I don't see it helping. I'm someone that's not a fan of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that uh, it's a front. I think it's a political organization. I don't think its true concern is about the life of black people. Uh, Look, there are hundreds of black people getting shot every weekend across America. I think I just read a CNN article that five children under the age of 11 were killed across this country, black children across this country, just this weekend. No one cares. No one speaks out. 
listen, I had a cousin killed by police violence in 2012 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, the, the issue that they allege to be concerned about is one that hits home for me. But I don't think that's the pandemic plaguing young black men. I, I think the data, the facts, the reality is crystal clear that there's an enormous amount of gun violence in poor inner city black communities. Uh, I grew up in one. A lot of my family grew up in one. Uh, we did not spend a, a lot of time worried about, oh, my God, are the police going to shoot us? We worried about the young men in the neighborhood that were involved in gang violence. That's what the real killer is and the real issue. And there appears to be no focus or energy on that. The, the stats, the reality is that you're just as likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning as you are by the police. That, that's just a fact. That's not me choosing a side. That's just me stating a fact. And so I just think a lot of this is misguided. I think a lot of it is political. It's a tool used by uh, apparently the Democratic Party to rally support for them politically. And that's why these things bubble up so much uh, in a presidential election cycle. And then if you just go look at the people who founded Black Lives Matter, they've been trained in Marxism. It certainly has a communist, socialist influence to it. And, you know, for me, someone that grew up a Christian, someone who uh, identifies as a Christian, if you understand communism, if you understand Marxism, it's an anti-religious political movement. And so I'm just not comfortable with Black Lives Matter. I think that LeBron James and a lot of the athletes, uh, particularly the Nike athletes, use Black Lives Matter as a tool to promote Nike's agenda. Nike is heavily dependent upon China and, you know, cheap labor in Asia. And China and communist-run countries love this sort of smear of America as the most racist place on earth. And it's just not, that's not supported by the facts. America is a worldwide leader when it comes to dealing with the issue of race. Obviously, we're not perfect. Uh, no one is. But if you compare us to the rest of the world, we're doing better than everybody else. So when you share these opinions uh, with people in the sports world, especially with elite athletes, what kind of feedback do you get from them? Well, I, most of these athletes are controlled and don't engage with people who push back against them. And so, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, with the with the LeBron James, Colin Kaepernick guys at the forefront, but, you know, when you – talk to the athletes that used to appear on my television show and athletes that I'm friends of, so many of them have a social media understanding of America's problems. And that's the shallowest end of the pool. And social media is where uh, racial division is stirred on a daily basis. Racial division is rewarded over social media. And so when you have a not just athletes, but a country and a media that's addicted to social media, the shallow end of the pool, the end of the pool where racial division is rewarded, it's hard to get them to understand in a 15-minute hour conversation, three-hour conversation, three-week conversation. It's hard to get them to understand, like, these are the facts, these are the reality, because 
we all have been trained to be addicted to our smartphones and the information that comes from our smartphones. And these social media apps are a big part of our smartphones, and they're misleading and misguiding the public and stirring racial division. And so it's very hard to get people to fully understand what's going on. I spent 23 years working for daily newspapers in three states, another 18 years in electronic media. I don't even trust the media anymore, even though I'm still a member of it. What has happened? Uh, I completely agree with you. I'm glad to hear someone say that. that as someone, again, I joined the mainstream media in 1990 uh, when I got out of college at Ball State, and I don't trust the mainstream media either. I think the issues over the last 10 years have been made more acute uh, in terms of there's been a dramatic pivot from the mainstream media clickbait journalism and social media driven journalism those of us in the media are addicted to twitter and it's like i make no secret of the fact that being involved in the media your bosses the executives the corporate people seem to be controlled by social media so you have no choice but to join twitter and try to build a following because your bosses are evaluating you based off your twitter feed how many followers do you have that impacts your value to to your corporation and once now that we all have this addiction there's certain things that social media rewards and it doesn't reward facts it doesn't reward good grammar it doesn't reward nuance and context it rewards polarization and divisiveness and it rewards race baiting and so that's why you see so many people in the media and that's why you see so many media narratives that are strictly out to drive clicks out to drive emotion and are racially polarizing we've been going and this coincides this whole black lives matter movement coincides with the rise of social media and twitter's influence over the mainstream media and it's only on twitter where I think in 2019, nine unarmed black men were killed by the police, according to the Washington Post. Nineteen unarmed white men were killed by the police in 2019, according to the Washington Post. Only on Twitter, with the police having hundreds of millions of encounters a year, could we take nine deaths and portray it as a pandemic and, oh, my God, we must do everything to stop it. Only on Twitter could that exist. And then because of our addiction to Twitter, we spread it through the mainstream media. We do television shows based on it. We do uh, written series and major newspapers about this nine-person pandemic that's wiping out uh, black America. We're killing black men unarmed nine times a year or 12 times a year, whatever it is, I just don't think that's a genocidal plot. I think that's a byproduct of we have a heavily armed society over here because of the Second Amendment, and the police have millions of encounters, and when they go to high-crime areas where a lot of poor inner-city communities are high-crime, and they're looking for violent criminals, 
there's going to be tension and there's going to be mistakes. And obviously what Derek Chauvin did in Minneapolis is a criminal offense. It's a heinous one. Uh, but I, there's no proof Derek Chauvin, the policeman in Minneapolis, was driven by race. When I look at that, that's an abuse of power is what I saw. I didn't, There's no proof he did that because George Floyd was black. But over Twitter, and because Twitter drives everything, we can assign motive to Derek Chauvin without any proof. Again, because all that was that we know fact is an abuse of power. And the guy needs to be charged, put away. It's heinous what he did. But there's no proof he was driven by race. But we'll say it. We'll exploit and stir racial division within this country to the point of riots and violence and looting that's threatening to tear down this country, the media just doesn't care about facts. And and corporate America doesn't seem to care because the media, at the end of the day, reports to corporate America and their corporate sponsors, and they seem to be financing this. We're living in a very sad time where the truth has been made irrelevant and inconsequential and that's you can't have a healthy republic. You can't have a healthy country if that's the case. Uh, Jason, I know you got to run, but just two things I would add here is that uh, the consolidation of the media ship of the media fewer own, the ownership is limited and fewer people own more things. I think that's been a factor. And I think you're right about bosses tracking the numbers. But we got a lot of bosses who didn't grow up and get promoted through the business, and so hey, they know the numbers. I, 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 you make a hell of a point, and, and that's, I'll end on this note. Look at what we've done through the coronavirus pandemic in terms of shutting down all these businesses. The small businessman is being run out of America. Everything's going to be Walmart, Costco, major chains, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is what concerns me in terms of what, America was built on the backs of small businessmen, small entrepreneurs, and we're seeing them destroyed right now under the excuse of, and look, the coronavirus is serious, but I'm not sure if shutting down America hasn't created more problems than the coronavirus. Uh, Guys, thank you for the time. We'll do it anytime. Uh, Appreciate the, the questions and the conversation. Jason Whitlock joining us right here. And if you like what you just heard from Jason Whitlock, you can consider becoming an OutKick VIP for just $99 a year. You get exclusive access to Clay Travis's national radio show and events Clay and Jason sponsor. OutKick.com is the fearless and authentic voice of sports fans nationwide. DJ and PK, there is Jason Whitlock. PK, we got a couple minutes here before the break. That was a lot. It's always a lot when you hear Jason Whitlock. It's not surprising if you've seen him. He says stuff, and he's a lightning rod, and people love it, and people hate it. And some people love some stuff and hate other stuff, uh, but it's rarely boring. Would you like to jump in anywhere? (laughs) Well, that's what I like about Jason Whitlock is I don't agree with him on everything he says, but I don't care about agreeing. It's about understanding. It's about thinking. It's about pondering. Those are the reasons why I consume Jason Whitlock as he's moved from platform to platform in different companies is because he makes me think. It's not about whether I agree with him or not. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. That's the point. It's about thinking and all these things. Yeah, we're being force fed some stuff, particularly 
generally, you know, he's got his opinions on the Black Lives Matter, and and I guess that as a black man, which he is obviously, that's something that's viewed as controversial. But to me, uh, one of the things is is the media, man. I I'm, I grew up in the business, and I don't trust it. Where what's your agenda? What party are you registered with? Every time we have somebody on, I go look. We've had Washington columnists, Washington Post columnists, and people from back there. I go look and see where they, what party they registered, and and it's not necessarily fair, but I view it as suspicious. What's your motive? Where are you going with this? You know, there's been talk of. Uh, I just read this morning. Oh, this virus is going to end November fourth if Biden gets elected. That's oh, oh my gosh, and there's some truth to it. And it just drives me crazy. I grew up in a business where you were not identified with a political party. I never have ever once registered with a political party. That's the way I was brought up in this business, is you're supposed to be neutral as much as you possibly can, recognizing that there's all sorts of biases that I have. Everybody has them. I'll go to my grave saying we've all got biases. Anybody says they don't, they're ridiculous. But nevertheless, we're what are we being fed here in this social media aspect of it and Colin Kaepernick going on Twitter on on. on July 4th and tweeting out what he tweeted basically this country sucks and it's like oh my gosh and you know and he's being financed by Nike what's the deal there who do I believe who do I don't believe I don't know I don't know anymore there's certainly been a lot of changes and I think the biggest one is the consolidation of ownership when I got into radio a company could own two radio stations in one town an AM and an FM my first employer KTMS in Santa Barbara they own KTMS, Y97, that was it. Now you can own seven uh, in one town. You can, uh, in, in TV, you know, the, the rules change. You can own seven stations up to, you can own stations that cover 40% of America. Doesn't matter if the Democrats or Republicans are in the White House or control Congress, they keep upping the amount of media you can own. It's getting consolidated, and I think that changes a lot of stuff. All right, well, we could spend hours on this. People have literally written books about this. We've got to take a break. When we come back, our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland, he's going to have a story because he always has a story. You've never heard it before, but it will be fascinating, 100% guaranteed. Steve Cleveland next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK brought to you in part by Syringa Networks. Syringa Network's home to complete business telecom and IT solutions, backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. DJ, PK, and Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joining us now. Steve, good morning. Good morning. So, Steve, every week you come on, and there's no games. You wonder what we're going to talk about, but you continue to amaze us, reaching deep into your bag of stories and you pull out another thriller every week. I am dying to know what it's going to be. And right now, you probably don't even know what it's going to be. But I know it's out there, Steve. <laughs> there is some truth to that. I don't know that I've ever been on a television or radio show where I have no idea what we're going to talk about. <laughs> 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 well, I'm a producer I, or the host. 
So I, I was thinking. Uh, uh, go ahead, PK. I think DJ, we got to stop calling him our basketball insider and just call him our life insider. I agree with that. I think that's actually the reason the segment works. It's because the story, yeah. the stories aren't all about. Well, with three minutes left, we called a timeout and I drew up a play. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's, Go ahead. There's a lot of different stories out there. I, I'm just curious now, and as a college coach, Kyle Whittingham said this, and when he said it, I thought, yeah, it's probably true, but that, and now the closer we get to it, the more I think, nope, Kyle had it. He had it dialed in. He said at the start of the whole coronavirus thing, he says, I think we're all going to look at the NFL. Because if the NFL can't go, I don't see how college can. They've got more money and they got fewer players. If they can't pull it off, I don't see how we're going to pull it off with less money and more players. And if we can't pull it off, how can high school football pull it off? And so I thought, oh, there's some truth to it. But the closer we get, the more I think, oh, he is really spot on. Now let's change that to basketball and let's go back a few years and pretend you're still coaching, Steve, instead of, you know, enjoying the grandkids and golfing and watching everyone else deal with the stress. Uh, Because you got a good thing going, Steve. You got a very good thing going. Uh, but if you were coaching now and you're watching what the pros are going through, and I keep hearing this, and we talked with uh, Dr. David Petron's come on a couple times, and you know he's at the University of Utah and he's hip deep in all the medical stuff, a real bridge between the medical community and the sports community there. And, and I ran this by him too. The Bucks and the Kings on Sunday closed down their practice facilities because of positive tests. The Nuggets, the Heat, the Clippers, and the Nets have done it. And my point to Dr. Petron was, are people safer in their home market, or are they safer going to a bubble in Orlando? There are certainly risks in Orlando. There's no question. Uh, How big a risk, I don't know that we can really assess. But there are clearly risks staying in Denver, staying in Miami, staying in Brooklyn, staying in L.A., staying in Sacramento, and staying in Milwaukee. So you're weighing the risks. Now, it's a little different with college kids because they're not making millions of dollars. In some cases, they might be 17 and be minors. So bringing a kid onto a college campus is risky, but leaving that kid in their community, a kid who, depending on the story, you know, maybe they're living in an apartment with seven or nine or 11 people or whatever. And if one person gets it, how are you going to socially distance you know, that, that's a real risk. How would you be feeling as a college coach now going on with the season and bringing kids on campus, knowing kids are coming from so many different places, some which may be hotspots, some not. Some kids are living in 4,000 square feet with four people. Some are living with eight people and, you know, 1,500 square feet. What would you be thinking right now as a college coach? Well, I think, I think first of all, uh, the whole thing would make you nervous. Uh, you know, I think the good, the good thing is that uh, a lot of the universities have plans in place, and, and we read about them, heard about them. And, you know, the idea that you come in and get your individual work, you have your own basketball, and when you're done with your own basketball, it gets completely wiped down, and, you know, you go to another sector and you work on something else. Um, you know, we've never, we've never seen the game look like this before. Uh, but I just tell you, as a coach, I think you do every possible thing you can do. And, and we'll, we'll address another issue is those that don't have the resources. But if you have the resources, especially right now where the dorms aren't really being used, there's a lot of housing where you know individuals can house by themselves. Uh, there's certainly plenty of space on campus right now for social spacing to eat and do those. I mean, those are all things that are controllable. And so... Yeah, it'd make you nervous, but I think there's also something there that really brings a group together. And it's, it's kind of us against the world, you know, us against the pandemic. 
And and I, I think there's some solidarity that comes from this when guys get together under really, really difficult circumstances that is so public and so transparent out there around the world that I think it brings your team closer together. I mean, it's kind of you're, you're fighting a battle, you're being protective, certainly you're nervous. I can't imagine a campus, you know, like you said, 17 and 18 year olds, what are, what are they doing? You're going to have to have control of their lives. And that makes, you know, right now I, I hear all of the, the narrative with the NBA is players even saying this about themselves. Hey, they don't have the discipline to do that in their life. There's no way that they can just stay in that bubble and not leave it and go get a bite to eat or go to a club or do those kinds of things. But I, I have a little more respect and admiration for the, for the NBA and for the coaches. Yes, there may be a few defectors that mess it up from themselves and maybe mess it up for a lot of people if bad things happen. But I, I believe as a college coach, you, you have an opportunity here to be as together as you have ever been. I mean, it, it's kind of like being on an island together, and we gotta, we got to hang in there for each other. And so immediately the culture of that organization, whether it was tight-knit or it was a group of guys all coming back from the year before, it, you're going to see more united teams. I suspect you'll see some mistakes. But I, to be honest with you, I think every coach, I mean, look, consider what coaches do around the world. Every year around during the late summer, early fall, uh, they're doing retreats. They're, they're doing experiences together. They're, maybe they're doing a Navy SEALs thing. Maybe they're doing uh, rope climbing. Maybe they're you know, doing the rope courses. Whatever teams do to kind of pull them together, they don't have to do that this year because it's been done for them. It's called the COVID-19. It's the pandemic. And so a lot of the things that are happening, are, I think, are going to have a real positive impact on teams and coaches and unity and bringing them together. Where they've got to trust each other now because they're in a circumstance and environment they don't understand. And so they have to lean on and understand that, uh, hey, we got to do this together, man. We don't want anybody to get this you know, COVID-19. We don't want anybody to get hurt. We've got to stay together. We've got to smart. We've got to hang out for each other. You, you might have some teams where you have two or three seniors that you're player-led guys that make sure guys are where they're supposed to be. Now everybody's helping everybody because there's just so many unknowns. I don't know if you saw that Morgan Scally, the Utah came out and I guess the verdict or the results of the investigation, you know, he's a defensive coordinator on the football team, and he's going to stay. He uh, basically, he was going to be coaching waiting. They've rescinded that, and they've cut his pay from uh, like a million plus down to 500 plus and a couple other things. My thought for you, my questioning, is, you know, you're in that stressful situation when you're coaching these kids. And we've seen it a little bit with Oklahoma State and their football coach. He took a million-dollar pay cut. Uh, how do you think it's going to change the way coaches interact with players now? Uh, and it can get volatile, and you can get heated and say stuff and so forth. So I'm wondering is how much of a fundamental change is there going to be as, as coaches try to coach their players? Oh, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a change. And, I, and, I, and I'm not just talking about the racial slurs and those things. I mean, we just take the, the complete body of coaching, player-coach relationships. And I think you guys watch it all the time at the high school and the college and the professional level. 
And young people today, there's a heightened sensitivity. You know, people, well, they're millennials, or they're, you know, they're this or that. But at the end of the day, there is a sensitivity to uh, being more uh, kind and, and being more honest and giving more positive feedback and those kinds of things, which are all character traits of what all good coaches have. There's another side of coaching where, you know, you, you're dealing with frustration, you're dealing with a lack of performance or a lack of execution, lack of effort. And all coaches have ways to get the attention of their teams. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, when I got back from Indiana, um, I ended up going to a junior college. I went to watch uh, a junior college practice. In fact, the, the coach asked me to come watch and tell me what I thought about his team. And the last junior college team that I had at, at that school, uh, there was, I mean, we, I think we had nine Division I transfers. I mean, there are Division One guys that went on and played at the Division One level. So I had really, really good teams. And so I walked in there, and I looked around, and I saw, hmm, you know, I know I'm sure there was a Division One player in the program, uh, but maybe a Division Two, maybe NIA, but there wasn't a lot of great talent. But guys were giving a great effort. And this coach was someone that could really get kids to play hard. About midway through, the, through practice, he, he started getting into kids. And, uh, and using inappropriate language and, uh, you know, just, just doing things that, I, that just bothered me a little bit, you know. And, and I, I know when guys get upset and make a mistake and say something that they wish they hadn't. But when you use words as adjectives, adverbs, nouns, you know, there's certain words in our language, you can use them and they have context on almost everything. And, uh, and I started watching and, and it kind of just made, it kind of disgusted me because I thought this, this is not how we're going to treat people. You know, and and they had won twelve or thirteen championships in a row. And he generally is is a, is a good person. I mean, he's got a good family, but this was a one little wart in his coaching career that I thought I'm going to need to say something. I, I can't sit here and watch this when it's done. So I sat down with him. When I told him, I said, "Listen, you know, this is you know, 2016, 2017, man. You you." I know there may have been a time back in the 40s and 50s where people just said what they wanted and, and no one ever knew about it. But this is a time where people come in here, you got the media, you got the TV. You, I, I, you know, in that day, there was nobody in. I think he had locked the doors, you know, and there wasn't anybody in there. But the language, and, and not so much the language, but the tone of it, it was personal. You know, you know what I mean? Where people personalize things. And I just told him, I just said, you know what? Listen, Coach, I said, I love you. I love what you do. I said, but you've personalized everything. And I said, it's one thing to, to use a swear word to get somebody's attention. It's another thing to use it several times and personalize it. That will destroy your team. It will destroy the morale of your team. I said, you can't do that stuff anymore. And he had been around coaches, old school coaches, that that's kind of how they did things. And, I, and I've had coaches like that. that that's not going to – first of all, it's, it's not the best way to coach. It's not the best way to motivate. But it was a way that was used a lot. And, 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 and I've never been in a setting where there were racial uh, situations uh, or comments. I, I've never been in that. I coached a, a lot of diverse teams, uh, not just African-Americans, but Hispanics and, and, and European players. Uh, so I've never really experienced that firsthand. But uh, it's certainly something that I never would have. But I, I, I think for a long time, coaches kind of lose their minds. For a long time, I'd, I'd go in and watch practices. When I was doing stuff for ESPNU, I'd go and always watch practices. And, uh, and I felt like about half the time it was demeaning. 
It was hurtful, and it didn't really – I mean, there's a difference between getting into a guy and getting an effort from him and yelling at him and, and uh, rather than telling him that he's this or he's that and, you know, and, and really, really using destructive language. So it's, it's one of those things that you have to, to really, really, really be appropriate about, understanding that these are young people. And it's, I'm not saying for a minute you don't get after people and push them to their limit. And, but I think there's ways you can do that in a positive way. And, I, and even with a, with a tone of voice that says, I'm not happy. But never, ever, uh, with excessive swearing and really inappropriate swear words that uh, people would be, might be sensitive to, and, and certainly racial slurs, those kinds of things, there's no place for that anymore. And it's existed. We know it's existed. And there's just no place for it. I, I will say one other little quick thing. I remember my first year as a high school coach. And I was 23 years old. And I had a JV team. Uh, we were a brand-new high school. And uh, so uh, we only had ninth and 10th graders. So you know I didn't have real good players. And so, so anybody that could shoot, walk, talk was on the, the varsity. And I had everybody else. And, uh, and I had a lot of energy. I just finished playing down at Irvine. I was excited. And uh, we had a day where a kid challenged me. And, and this was a day I, it could have changed my life. I mean, he, he said some really inappropriate things to me, not having any idea what, what, you know, really understanding what this environment and circumstance looked like. And I, I lost my mind. <laughs> I mean, I took off after the kid. And I, we're in the middle of practice. I, and I'm, I take after this kid. And I am a full-speed sprint. And I'm not even sure what I'm going to do when I get to him, but it's probably not going to be the right thing. <laughs> because he, he had really, really embarrassed me in front of this team. And I ran him, and I caught him, and I, I got him in a corner. And I never touched him, though I wanted just to smack him in the head. I never touched him. I put my arms on the walls and just got right in his face and just told him, don't you ever, 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 ever say something like that, do something like that. And by that time, he's scared, you know, a little bit. But I thought to myself, what, what if I had done something really inappropriate? What if I pushed him and he fell down or hit him? Or, you know, because I was livid. I was livid that he would say something like that. And he was a 14, 15-year-old kid who didn't know any better. Uh, but I remember that being a time when uh, if I had done something, you know, I might have been selling insurance very quickly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I know how it happens, but I I, I understand, and I, I'm not saying people, you know the language you use in our practice that's that's you that's you, but at the end of the day, when it becomes real personal, uh, it can really destroy a team. See, I knew there'd be a story, no doubt in my mind. There it is. I knew you had it, Steve. <laughs> I just think that if you're coaching kids now at the high school, the college level. Possibly, possibly at the pros too when they're new to the team and new to the league. But until you have their trust and until you feel, and this is not how things were wired in the 70s or 80s or whatever decade, but now there is so much anxiety and so much stress in the average kid's life, even in the kids who are performing academically and athletically, they're carrying around a ton more anxiety and stress than we did when we were kids. I think until you have their trust and they want to perform for you, and it doesn't matter if it's sports or academics or the arts, uh, drama, music, whatever, until they think this person has my back, 
they're not really going to perform. And when you hold them accountable, it can't be so much yelling at them as the group is counting on you to do this. You got to do it for the group. And that is, if you go any harder than them at that, I think that's where we start to see 800 transfers. I don't, yeah. I don't think anything yeah. else works anymore. I, I completely agree. And, it, and, and the NCAA has made it so easy now. And, you know, I'm sure that this one-time opportunity to transfer uh, is, is probably going to happen, you know. Um, and, and, and I don't know when, when it does. And you've really got to be sensitive to those things. You know, one of the things that I – just looking from afar, and I'm not – I've not been to a practice. Uh, I've been to some informal workouts and things, but I, I know just I, the coach Pope at BYU has, has really made a huge thing about having the best locker room in the country. You know, whether that's true or not, it, it, it doesn't matter. That's that is what they've established, and that is that is something that that's the brand of that that program. And I, I thought, you know, that's a really really good thing. I mean, what, what a great thing to wrap your arms around. And again, I'm not really, but I've been to maybe 20 or 30 minutes of watching practices before games and stuff, so I haven't seen them practice a lot. But I, I thought that idea of having the best locker room in the country, you know, everybody's got slogans and different things, but in this day and age, you know, what does that look like? Well, that, that probably looks like coaches that care, care about kids, that, that players getting along. And not being selfish, and it's a it's a united you know it, it it brings on a life of its own, and so what does a team look like that has you know has a great locker room, uh, you know in that kind of player led type teams, those are the kinds of things that resonate with parents today, with players today, where it's with just what you just said, where I know there's going to be some trust, I know people are going to have my back, I know that things don't go well, they won't give up on me. I know I'm gonna. They're gonna help me get better. Get to the, you know, when we were coaching, you'd recruit a kid and we said we're gonna help you get to the next level, right? When I when I was a high school coach, I said I'm gonna get you to the next level. You know, you're you're trying to sell your program to the community, get people to move in, transfer, whatever. Junior college, you know, the, the whole theme. Junior college was so much fun because every kid was there. They had the same, you know, goal. I want I want to play at the next level. And so you're doing things to play at the next level. And now, now you know, you get in a situation where you establish a culture that says, we want everybody in America to come to our place. You know, and so you can do that with so many different platforms and social media that reaches so many more people than we used to. I mean, nobody outside of Fresno would have any idea what the Fresno City College program was about unless you were, had a son in uh, playing at that level, or you were a coach. I mean, we, we had limited access to the world there. Well, today, that's not the case. And so if I'm coaching today, those are the things, Dave, that, Dave, that you just talked about, that I want everyone to know that that's who we are, that's how we go about doing our business, and uh, this is about the players. This is a player's team. It's a player-led team. we got a great locker room. You, you know, everybody talks about their facilities and all those things, but I think in this day and age, Having a good locker room is really important to players uh, and especially parents. Steve, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks for the stories and the perspective. Our Thank life, our life insider, <laughs> Steve Cleveland, joining us. We, yeah, I appreciate it. We got lots of stories, man. And uh, you know, the thing about this is, uh, as I think back, just in in, the, in my, all of my experiences. Uh, 
they don't always come to you, but they do come back to you. I, that's the one thing. I just be doing things, a photo pop-up. So thank you for allowing me to kind of go back into my life and uh, remember the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. See ya. When we come back, all the headlines, what is trending's coming up. 